Chama, you know why we're here. So if you have any doubts or reservations, now is the time to say so. No one will think any less of you. Because once you enter this family, there's no getting out. This family comes before everything else. Everything. It's a thing of honor. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. There was a dream that was Rome. It shall be realized. Welcome back to the David Gascon Report on Fox Sports Radio's podcast edition from Behind the Glass. I am your host, David Gascon. Thank you very much for dropping on by. We're active on social media. I'm on Twitter, at David J. Gascon. Ghazal Hassan, you are back with us working the Periscope and doing whatnot. What's good, man? I'm just a FanDuel kind of guy Shh. in a DraftKings kind of world. That's all I am. Don't even start with that right now. Also, we're going full-blown Hollywood here. He plays David Polk in the TV show Being Mary Jane, joined by actor, retired baseball player, Stephen Bishop. You are in Studio 54. I am. Stephen, what's I'm up, man? I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I, last time I saw you guys was on a... A computer screen type of a we, we've group moved up. podcast. We've, you guys are moving up in moved. the world. <laughs> Technology's moved up a little bit. I was in San Diego at the time. I think, Gazal, you were in Riverside, I, I think. No, no, I, w- I was just in my apartment in L.A., but I mean... Well, it I, looked like Riverside I'm then. Remote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, Stephen, we were talking about mostly baseball, and we'll definitely get into that today as well. But, yeah, big thanks, obviously, for dropping on by. You thought about doing something like this, so hopefully this kind of piques the interest a little bit more and kind of gets you branching off and doing your own thing. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I've i been thinking about doing a, a radio talk show because I listen to talk radio every day. I listen to talk radio more than I listen to anything else, to be honest with you. And I've recorded a few uh, on my voice record on my phone, a few topics that I would discuss. And I've let a couple of my friends hear it. And they, they're like, man, you should really do a podcast. And, and maybe that'll springboard you onto a radio you know, maybe the fact that I'm on television or, or whatever could get me into a serious, you know, if they have open slots, I could do something like that. But this is something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, I have no shortage of words. <laughs> a lot of people will tell you I talk too much. So I thought maybe I could use it for something good. But I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you guys. You, I remember when you were co-hosting on ESPN, you did His and Hers in an episode with Jamil Hill. I remember, and I, I didn't know this about you, that your father was in the was in the broadcast industry when you were growing up. He was a uh, sportscaster for the CBS affiliate in Milwaukee. Go Bucks! Yeah, my brother would love <laughs> you for that. My brother, I keep telling him, you need to get a team that you're going to actually have a chance of winning something, but... You know, he's a loyalist. He's born and bred in Milwaukee. Well, I mean, Jay Kidd, I thought, did Larry Jewell wrong. But, man, he did a good job with the Bucks last year. And, and they're more talented this year. They're going to be healthy. They got, uh, they'll, be, they'll be healthier, and they got some more talent in there. So we'll see how the Bucks do. Yeah, it looks like my brother might be on the road to making me eat crow. So. And, the East, <laughs> and the East is wide open. That's the other thing about it for yeah, the Bucks. Yeah. Are you a yeah. big NBA guy, Stephen? You know, I'm not a big NBA guy. I pick it up usually around the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, sports in general has been something throughout my life that I've enjoyed playing more than watching. Uh, and after retiring, you know, people always ask me, who's your team? Who's your team? I don't have teams. Mm. I have I, I like watching good sports. Sure. Uh, Dave Stewart. You guys know Dave Stewart. Absolutely. The old Oakland A's pitcher. He told me when I was on my way to my first spring training, he said, you'll never be on the same level as these guys if you continue to idolize them. And that really stuck with me. And, and you know, it got me to a place where I, I don't have favorite teams or players. I just like to watch a good game. Uh, I, I lean towards the Braves because they gave me my first professional opportunity. I got a ring with them as a scout, National League Championship ring. So I'm a Brave at heart, but, you know, I don't, I don't have teams. So uh, basketball is something that, like I said, I like to watch the good stuff, so I, I pick it up around the playoffs. What about NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NHL? Do you go? Is there any sport that you go like wire to wire as far as coverage goes? Golf. Or is it golf? Golf. I watch. I'll watch every day of a golf tournament on television. Really? Uh, yeah. No, that. Now that's something I really do enjoy. Um, because I'm I'm an avid golfer myself. Uh, seven handicap, and to watch these guys and the subtleties and the nuances of their game. 
I can learn. And especially with DVR, where I can go, I can rewind, pause, and go frame for frame and see what their hands are doing, see when their their uh, weight transfer happens. I can see all these things. So I really enjoy watching it. I have a, f- uh, a few friends on the on the tour. Ricky Fowler is a buddy of mine. Brendan Steele is a buddy of mine. He went to UCR, by the way. You know that. That's right. Go Highlanders. Uh, Gary McCord, also a UCR guy. Uh, you know, and James Driscoll, actually, he's, you know, b- bouncing back and forth between the PGA and the, and the web.com. He actually just taught me something at Ryan Sheckler's celebrity tournament last week that has changed my golf game. I just I, sh- I played at my nemesis course today where I'm happy to break 90 and I shot 81 and I probably should have ra- shot around 77. I burned about six edges and missed a three foot birdie put on the first hole. So James Driscoll, if you're out there listening, I want to thank you for changing my game. I'm pounding the ball now with no effort and no thought. Thank you very much. Golf is a game you have to play a lot to be good at. Do you, I mean, so obviously you get out and play an awful lot then, huh? I do. I play, I try to play three times a week. Uh, if I'm not working, if I'm not working, it's a running joke amongst my team, my publicists, and my managers. If he's not on set, he's on a golf course. If you want to find right. him, call him on the golf <laughs> they're course. They're worst places to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No they're worst places to be. At least they're not chasing you out of a club at three in the morning. You That's know? true. I don't have it. I don't have to worry about you know TMZ and and that type of thing. Although TMZ has been really good to me over the years, they've been uh, they've been very kind to throw me really good questions in the airport when they see me and things like that. So I uh, you know big shout to to Peter. And the rest of the guys over there at TMZ, um, but no, it, golf is—it's an addiction, man. It, you you get out there and you start becoming proficient at it, and then all of a sudden you want to go to a five handicap, and then you when you get to five, which I haven't yet, I'm only to seven now. Let's say you want to go to ten, then you want to go to five, then you want to go to scratch, you know. Mm. And so, it's one of those things that you you ha- like you said, you have to put in the time, and I do. I if I'm not, like I say, if I'm not working, I'm playing golf, and if I'm not playing, I go to practice. So that's you know, Calabasas Country Club is where I play out of. They've got a a, a great, uh, I believe it's a Dave Pell's uh, short game area over there, and it's it's just a fantastic thing. And golf is a, a very cerebral sport, and uh, you can tell a lot about a guy just by playing golf with him. You know, you played collegiate ball at UC Riverside and then you played in Major League Baseball played for the Atlanta Braves affiliate among some other teams as well has any of that carried over to your golf game oh absolutely Uh, you know when you become a professional at one thing you learn what it takes to become a professional and then you believe that you can do it at other things Uh, the fundamentals are what's so important about anything that you're going to do professionally and that's what I've taken into the golf game it's you know I've learned that it's it's great to be able to hit the ball 320, but if I can't get up and down when I miss a green, or if I can't, you know, hit a five iron under a tree branch and still advance it up the up the the fairway to give myself a chance to get up and down, there's a lot of the the things and and just the mental toughness. I mean, mental toughness is something that I learned a lot about in American Legion. Uh, Don Miller was my coach there, and he he was really big on mental toughness. Uh, and then when I went to UCR, Jack Smitherin and Doug Smith were, were both also big on mental toughness. And it's it's difficult sometimes to be mentally strong on a golf course because it's it's such a long round and so many bad things can happen that when they start to mount, it's it's easy to give up mentally. But over the last probably seven or eight months, I've really gone hard at, at trying to really stay in it no matter what's happening the fortunate thing for you is you go from baseball to golf one humbling sport to the other because you can hit a ball right on the screws and it goes right to the shortstop same thing in golf yeah you can hit a ball really pure and have it be off the plantation you know what I mean you can just there's been there's been so many times where I've hit a ball that I thought I struck perfectly that hooked out of bounds mm-hmm. you know it's just, and that's that's just a matter of sequencing and things like that so yeah baseball to acting to golf all of it for some reason i, I think i'm a glutton for punishment man. <laughs> yeah, and baseball and golf what's interesting is those are two of the sports that have produced some of the best literature you know in, in the history of, at least of the of, in terms of the united states they're great writers who write about baseball in terms of covering baseball but also works of fiction and I, I always think of mark twain who talks about golf being a long walk spoiled and the kind of the the history of literature about golf and golfers that's also real real intriguing so kind of like it's kind of fitting that you're an actor because it's kind of a poetic you have two poetic sports that you're kind of taking with you yeah no it's it's crazy because like i said golf is one of those things that you can be on top of the world one second and then 
completely distraught the next. And if you allow, if you allow yourself to go on that roller coaster ride, it's going to be a long day. So, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about me that likes to take on the impossible, but it's it's something that I've been about since I was a little kid. So I guess I'd have to ask my parents about it. You're jumping around from one profession to the other, and it just seems like when we kind of track you and see what you're doing it's like you are in one project after another currently you're playing david pollock in the tv show being mary jane what is that like for you it's a completely different experience i would assume right yeah no it's fantastic and you know and again i have to thank uh mara brock akeel and salim akeel the creators of the show and bet deborah lee over there uh but it's a fan i mean it's a life-changing experience even more so than moneyball was because it's my first series regular job it's the mm-hmm. first time i'm i'm actually on your screens on a weekly basis and have a have a real fan base where uh you know david justice was already a superstar so if you had if you were a fan of his you you know through moneyball you might have become a fan of mine but that was a brad pitt movie that was a philip seymour hoffman jonah hill movie Mm -hmm. uh being mary jane is gabrielle union and i play her boyfriend so it's it's something where i'm i'm at the forefront and it's 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 really an outstanding uh jumping off point for me and a lot of the other things that I do like you said I I have my hands in so much and being a part of that show lends a lot of credibility to the other things that I'm doing and opens a lot of doors I I gotta tell you a great being Mary Jane story so obviously I I don't watch the show I mean I know about it because you're on and I follow on social media kind of the reaction but a friend of mine had just seen Moneyball so we were in the office kind of an area like out front here in Premiere with there's the desk and whatnot and he said, yeah, you know, Steve Bishop, that guy went to UCR. I said, yeah, you know, Steve went to UCR. He came up and sat in with me on a baseball game once. He did a podcast with us remotely. And you should have seen the secretary's reaction. <laughs> She's like, oh, my God, David from being Mary Jane. You have to have him come into the office. I'm like, well, I'll call him right now and get him to come <laughs> over. So I didn't realize the phenomenon. And, and, and there's like this loyal group, like with any show. There is this loyal group of people who live and die with that show, and Gabrielle Union, I, I've always thought was fantastic since uh, that cheerleading movie. She did Bring It On when yeah, she played ISIS yeah. of the uh, East Compton Clovers, but it's been huge for her, and obviously, I'm, it's been the same for you from from what you're saying with that, that that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Gabrielle is a bona fide movie star already. Mm-hmm. You know, she, you know, if you've seen her work throughout her career, she shines everywhere she goes. So uh, working opposite her is a fantastic experience. She's so prepared. She's such a professional. Um, and, you know, she's not difficult to look at at all. So, you know, it's, right. it, it's, it's a, you know, it's, I say it's a hard day at work, but somebody's got to do it. But no, uh, all jokes aside, the, the experience has been outstanding at every turn. And I, I just hope we get to continue. Uh, season three starts airing October 20th. And uh, and we've got a new time instead of ten o'clock. It's now nine o'clock. So we're we're more into prime time now, and it's on BET. And hopefully, we get a season four, and we get to keep the keep the story going. I was excited when we first met a few years ago, cause just because I remembered you from the rundown with The Rock, and that was the first thing I identified myself with. And I guess going back to those days, to where you're at now, whether it's male or female, do you take certain things from? each of the professionals that are out there and kind of make it your own or kind of learn and, and develop your own type of acting to the skills that you have right now and say, Hey, I need to be more like this or less like this. Like, are there certain things that you develop over the course of your career that you can attribute to other actors that you've worked with? Um, I, not attributes or technique, but I have gotten advice. Okay. Uh, I got advice from Samuel L. Jackson on my first ever job. I was doing extra work on the great white hype. And I sat with him at lunch because he wasn't the great Samuel L. Jackson yet. He was, you know, he was making his his way as well. Uh, and I asked him, hey, listen, from, you know, one actor to another, can you give me some advice? And he, he said, you know, first things first, don't do extra work anymore. And if you want to learn how to act, go act. Don't go to acting class. You know, acting is about being believable in an imaginary circumstance, being in touch with your emotions. Who's going to teach you how to do that other than yourself? So go out there, audition, not don't get parts, audition, get some parts, but just always be honing that craft. Well, it's like in, reps. Like, yeah, like yeah in- exactly. Getting in touch with your emotions, doing the 10,000 hours, you know what I mean? So, um, but what I, you know, what, one of the things that I have developed over the course of my career is 
a confidence in my natural ability that what I do is instinctual as an actor. I don't, I don't have any technique. I don't, like I said, I don't go to class. I haven't learned a technique. Mm. I just have gotten a lot of positive feedback from casting directors and directors and other actors about what I'm organically doing. So I, I really try to stay there. And, and it's sometimes it's difficult because you see guys doing things that you're like, wow, that was fantastic. I, you know, I'd love to do something like that. Sure. But then you might realize that somebody like Denzel Washington, who you say that about is improving at that at that moment so mm -hmm. you know that's a part of his natural character that you're seeing and you can't emulate that you, right you, because then you would look like denzel in your body you would be looking like i'd look like stephen bishop trying to do his best denzel and mm -hmm. that's not what i'm trying to do how do you evaluate yourself then well i i, I evaluate myself by watching the work and asking myself if it's believable do i believe it mm -hmm. and you know, do I believe the way it's coming out of my mouth? Do I believe the sound? Do I believe the tone? Do I believe the looks on my face? Do I believe the expressions that I'm giving when I'm not speaking? You know, these are all things that I look at because it's, you know, it's about being natural. And so I just evaluate, and plus my mom. You know, my mom will call me after every single thing <laughs> and say, you know, what, what she thinks. And, you know, that's, that's you know, mom is always a great, uh, barometer because she's going to tell you the truth um, but that's how I analyze honestly is I just I just make sure the things that I'm doing are believable and I try to be as natural as possible and if I see something that I don't like I just try to make a mental note not to do it again. Steven in your process are you better with a director that's more hands-on or are you better with somebody who kind of like all right I've seen what you do here's the character Let's find where you're where you're going to meet that character. Because I've heard actors, you know, I, I was told Oliver Stone doesn't really direct. He'll make you do something ten times. He'll shoot you doing something eight to ten times, and then he'll take what he likes out of it. Whereas other directors are more, they'll they'll inter interact with you a little bit more. They'll say, "All right, Stephen, let's sit down, let's talk for about ten minutes," and they'll try to draw out what they want to draw out. What's preferable for you in terms of that process? Uh, I like to work with what I call actors directors like Peter Berg the guy who really gave me my my big start in this business he was an actor before he was a director so the first thing he ever said to me on set was improv is highly encouraged on this set and that gives you huge carte blanche to just be yourself and be natural and do things that you you may not see on the page um I have worked with both types of directors, the ones that get out of the way and the ones that want to direct a lot. And I've found that it's it's satisfying to do both, but I like the ones that allow for instinct, you know, because the human condition is is natural and organic. So if I'm doing specifically in a box of what this person is trying to get me to do, it may not be me and it may come across as as contrived. So I, to answer your question, I think I like the guys that uh, step, back, that a step back a little bit more, and and not that they don't they don't interject. Like Bennett Miller on Moneyball, he was a step back kind of guy, but he would come to you between takes and whisper something that he saw, and give you you know plant a seed and then go away. But he wouldn't he wouldn't tell you, hey, I want you to do this. So and and, and I think most directors with, who are successful directors are people who trust their actors they they wouldn't have picked them if they didn't trust us and they want to see you know you don't you put it this way if you get you know what Branford Marsalis in a, in a in a room you're not going to tell him to, what notes to play you're going to yeah, say you, here's your guideline right, right. I want to see you play the line is you don't hire Frank Sinatra and have him play the drums that's you, right you, you have Frankie come in and just he just sings right it's Let funny that thing you rip. say that it's funny you say that because I actually played golf with a guy 93 years old about a month and a half ago who used to be Frank Sinatra's drummer Wow, man! <laughs> yeah. Everything man. full circle, huh? Yeah, no kidding. Talking about six degrees of separation. <laughs> Any preference, whether working on a TV set or, or movies for yourself? They both have their advantages. Um, but I, I think I like working on... Okay. The set of a film I like better because it, there's a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of edit going on in film. So you can take these pauses. You can take natural pauses and you can 
you can really breathe on a film. But in TV, it's timed because they have only so much time before they have to go to commercial breaks. Sure. So you can't, you, you know, it's it's a faster pace dialogue. Um, but I, the work schedule of TV, I like better than film because film, you know, you're going to work 14, 16 hour days sometimes and you're going to be there at 4.30 in the morning. You know, when you're on a show, most of the time you have a nine o'clock call time or maybe a little bit later you can go, you can, uh, you can sleep in, get a workout in. It's not, you're not completely, uh, disoriented by the time change. If you have night shoots for a week and you're, you know, you're waking up at three in the afternoon and not going to bed till, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon the next day, you know, mm. it, there's, there's just a lot that goes on on films when it comes to the scheduling. So I think I like the scheduling of TV, but I actually like the film work better. You mentioned earlier that you're a fan of of good sports, good games, good competition, and whatnot. I got to assume it's probably the same with television and movies, right? With you got your shows, you got your networks. Gazal and I go back and forth about this. I I love Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is the best show on television, hands down. That thing, I I do admit, I watched, I binge watched the entire thing, all five seasons, just like a month ago. Really, I had never watched it before. And I was like, fine, forget it. Let's just bear down and get this thing done. I had to do that for season one. Somebody kept telling me, oh, Game <laughs> of Thrones. I'm like, man, I, I've never heard of it. I don't have. I didn't even have HBO at the right. time. But he brought me on a on a disc to put in my computer on oh, okay. those zip drives. He downloaded the whole first season. Mm. I watched. Uh, let me turn this on. See what this is about. I watched the entire first season <laughs> in that sitting. I did not get up off the couch. I watched the entire first season in one sitting it's perfect that's crazy i'm not a binge watcher so i just i you know i i, I did the same thing with breaking bad did you really yeah because i wasn't watching that at all okay and i watched i binge watched that whole first four seasons in about a week and a half true detective haven't seen one episode okay daredevil haven't seen it all right walking dead i've seen a couple of episodes on tv because i happen to be passing by but right. you know when when i'm watching tv i'm watching the golf channel I'm watching H2 with, you know, Ancient Aliens and yeah. these types of things. Uh, Game of Thrones, Dog Whisperer, these things. And then, you know, his and hers, first take, Sports <laughs> Nation, highly <laughs> questionable, all the ESPN shows. So Highly questionable, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time watching scripted television, to be honest with you. It's, you know, it's, I guess that could, maybe that, that might be subconsciously, on purpose, if that makes sense, because I don't want to see too much acting and then try to do what you suggested before and and mine techniques from other shows. Right. So that might be something that I may be doing subconsciously on purpose. Show me a hero. That, that was I, I'm a big proponent. Of show me Oscar Isaac. He's going to be in the Star Wars movies. The dude's going to be a huge star. He was fantastic in that. Um, that was my in the last couple of months. That was the one thing that kind of jumped out at me. But I, you know, it's funny. I'm similar to you. If I'm if like, most of my television is sports, sports related, and then I'll DVR stuff. But it's got to get my attention. You know, I gotta I gotta be able to jump right into it when I watch it. Otherwise, you know, I'll have stuff that I'm waiting to see that I'll DVR, and then like after about a week, I'm like, well, obviously I haven't watched it, so I'm just gonna click, 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 and and and, and that's it, and it's did, done. Did you watch Breaking Bad? I did not watch Breaking Bad. Okay, you're tripping. <laughs> you need to go binge watch Breaking Bad no, immediately. I will tell you though, this this it, it changed the way I watch television. Changed because, uh, once I got a DVR, which I got in 2007. So it fits that the two shows I watched till the till their end. Two of my favorite shows were The Wire and Sopranos. I don't know that I would have been into those shows as much if I was managing my watching via DVR because that was back when you still had to you wait had to for the episode in. and yeah. you had to tune in, and it was really appointment television, similar to what happened with sports. Um, but yeah, I need to. I, Breaking Bad. So the thing is, Mad Men lost me in about season three. I was really into season one and two, and then. Like I missed, I think I missed the third episode, and then I woke up a week later. I'm like, you know, I really have no desire to watch it, and that was it for Mad Men. And not that it's not well done, because obviously it is. It just won a bunch of Emmys, I think, the other day. Yeah. And John Hamm's obviously fantastic. It's a well written show, and I get it. But there's just something that wasn't. You know, you've mentioned organic. It's like the the organic nature of how this character interacts in this world. Um, American Hustle. 
the film American Hustle. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. When I watched it, I said, you know, this is a film that was made to win awards. Mm-hmm. You know, when I saw, you know, Goodfellas or Casino, that seemed like a story to be told, and it was intense, and it had the acting. And I find that it seems that there's so much product out there now, Stephen, as you know, that a lot of this stuff is kind of made to be different for being different stake without any real stake in terms of the story. And I kind of, you know, being, being more of a, like a books guy coming into television from a literature background, I want it to be about the story. You need to see Breaking Bad, bro. Okay. Get on it. Well, Steven, since you are in the industry, i got to ask you this then. Is reboot after reboot? I mean, they're, yeah. they're going to reboot, uh, you know, is it um, the Patrick Swayze movie? Um, Roadhouse. 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 I, I can't believe it. Ronda Rousey. Play, I just played in a, in a celebrity golf tournament with Gary Hudson. Oh, no. He was on my team. <laughs> so all day. Roadhouse, <laughs> and he's a Family Guy fan as well. Okay, and you know how they family. You watch, you guys watch yeah, Family Guy, so you know Roadhouse is a theme yeah. for seasons on that. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, the, he's he's a great guy. We had a good time that day. Besides hitting the links and working on, obviously on set, you also do some work with a nonprofit organization named Rake. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Rake is random acts of kindness everywhere. Uh, it started by a, a friend of mine named Ricky Smith out of Cleveland. He's a comedian. Uh, he's a, a writer on the show Black Dynamite on Adult Swim. And uh, he, one day he decided that he was going to go from New York to Los Angeles with nothing but a, a debit card and his license and do random acts of kindness along the way and receive random acts of kindness to help him get from coast to coast. And uh, he he started posting pictures of, of the rakes he was doing. And, and I said, you know what? This is my buddy. He's doing this. I'm going to support him. So, you know, so he's not out there feeling like he's just doing this in vain. So I went out and did a rake and I, I posted it. And the the feeling that you get from looking at somebody's face who you don't know, who you've just done something kind for is addictive. So I started doing more and more, and he asked me to be on the board of it, and and now we're an official five hundred one c three charity. What's an example of of something? How I mean, it's uh, it's simple stuff. Yeah, simple. No, it doesn't need to be complex. It doesn't need to be over the top. Uh, The first one I ever did was at Crave down here on the corner of Ventura and Van Nuys. I Mm -hmm. bought the two people in front of me lunch, and I told the the uh, the cashier not to tell them where it came from. Uh, I, I did one in a grocery store where the woman had two carts of groceries and I, 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 I bought her both carts of groceries. Um, I was doing an interview for OKTV OK and uh, I had a rake shirt on and they asked me what, you know, what rake was about. So I said, you know what, I can show you better than I can tell you. So I, on camera during my interview, uh, we grabbed a random woman. We were at the Grove. We grabbed her, took her into Michael Kors and said, do you like anything in here? She said, oh, I really like that dress. And I said, go ahead, grab it. It's yours. It can be anything. You know, Ricky does things like hashtag lunch bag all the time. He goes out and buys uh, knit gloves in bulk so that when it's uh, wintertime in Cleveland, he goes and hands them out to the homeless people. Um, I sometimes will go, when I'm coming home, I'll see uh, – uh, guys under the overpass on off of the freeway, the 101 exit uh, Van Nuys, and I'll go to Subway right there on Addison and Van Nuys oh, okay. and buy a sandwich, and I'll go sit down and have, you know, go eat with the guys under the overpass. And it's, you know, it's anything that you can think of. It doesn't need to be planned. It doesn't need to be extravagant. It just needs to be kind, and it needs to be random. You know, uh, you could walk outside right now and, you know, see somebody down in the lobby about to pay for their ticket to get out of here and, and pay for it for them. And, you know, you, it's, it's anything that you can think of. And that's, what's so great about it. Anybody can do it. Anybody can receive it. And you'll get sometimes some pushback because people are not accustomed to having things given to them. And they're like, Whoa, 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 it was, what's the catch here. And you have to explain, you know, I have to explain sometimes, no, I'm a part of an organization called Random Acts of Kindness Everywhere, and I'm just trying to do something nice, no strings attached. I don't want anything from you. I just want you to smile. You know, so it's such a it's such a great thing, and, I, you know, it's starting to catch. I've had some really, really good meetings with some really, really powerful people that have been interested in getting involved with Rake. And uh, I'm actually putting together the, the inaugural Rake celebrity golf tournament which will be february 15th 2016 at calabasas country club 
it's it's such an easy thing to get behind. It's such an easy thing to do that. Imagine if one day everybody in the world decided they were going to do a random act of kindness for somebody else. Imagine what the world would be like on that day. Thinking about doing something like this, was it just in the front of your mind or in the back of your mind, or was it something that just came upon upon you because your friend had been doing it and was involved in it? Yeah, I just saw him doing it. Okay. And, and I was like, you know, I want to support him sure. because it's a great cause. It's a great idea. I have a voice, and I think that if I start to do do these things people because of my voice people that i don't know and people that i do know will catch on and 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 it will become a movement and it has and he's been he's been featured in men's health magazine now he's you know we like i said okay tv featured us i'm talking about it here with you guys so it's obviously making it's, it's the momentum it's, momentum is getting felt you guys still have t-shirts left i know you, you you're selling those every once in a while on on social media is there a website where we can go to get some of those absolutely rakenow.org is where you can go, and there's there's all types of different versions. Uh, I believe we're coming out with sweat jackets soon. We've got hats. We've got uh, random acts of kindness T-shirts. We've got hashtag rake T-shirts, uh, and you know it all goes to a good cause. We're just you know we're we're using this money to put back into the community on you know one one face at a time. My uh, my grandfather was a huge golf guy, so after he retired from the LAPD, I, he got into golf a lot. And when I was like 14, 15 years old, he tried teaching me how to golf, and that didn't go anywhere. I was playing football and baseball at the time, so I'm breaking irons and whatnot. But he had developed Alzheimer's, and so he's like 16. I'm 16, 17 years of age, and I had not g- got a good grasp of what Alzheimer's was. And I lived in San Diego for the past five, six years. And before I moved back, I thought, if I can get back to L.A., I want to do something along those lines, like what you're mentioning. So I had joined the Southland chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And to your point, it is the most humbling thing that you can be a part of because I speak at some of these events. And you talk to older people, and it's it's comforting to know for them that there's other people that are in the same shoes that either you've been in or have been a part in with your with your past whether it's friends immediate family or some distant relatives as well and it's just one of those things where the philanthropy work it's it's contagious because once you feel like you're doing something then you can take that next step and it goes to another thing and another event and then you see the people around you that are impacted by it and you're like wow this is really making a difference absolutely and the thing about rake is that it will happen to you when you don't even expect it to sure. happen. You'll be out in the middle of your life, and all of a sudden it'll, it'll occur to you, hey, you know what? I'm going to do a rake right now. And you'll look around you and literally find a random stranger and figure out what you're going to do. And like you said, it's, it's addictive. It, it's, it feels so good and takes so little effort to make somebody else's day it's it, it i mean i've learned a lot about myself and a lot about people by doing it i mean it's, it's such a great it's such a great idea ricky has come up with such a fantastic phenomenon and i hope that it continues to spread and i hope that one day we can have a rake holiday in the country he, we, he's already gotten an official rake day in cleveland by the mayor of cleveland and i'm hoping that we you know with the work we're going to be start doing coming up here soon we can get a, a, a national rake day there may be an unofficial national rake day but i would like to try to get one officially done and then try to try to take a, a bite out of the world and see how many countries we can get to do rake on rakes on the same day i think it would be fantastic and i think i mean it just the energy that would come off of this planet on that day you know god would have to smile down on us i mean the energy would be so positive it would be it would be phenomenal no doubt. Are you following the the GOP debates at all? You know, it's very interesting to me. So I am following them. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of comical things going on over there. But, Comicals, right? <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm very entertained by it. I mean, first of all, whether you like him or not, Donald Trump is dominating that entire program over mm-hmm. there. I mean, the thing he did the other day with uh, Ask Trump on Twitter. He knew what was going to happen, but he did it first. And now anybody that tries it is copying Trump. Right. And he also got an opportunity to put his positive uh, questions on his page and answer them the way he wants to. 
Uh, he's causing us to have conversations that we probably wouldn't have had had he not been in the race. Um, there's a lot of disappointing things that are that have happened. You know, I, I wasn't true, uh, truly happy about what Dr. Ben Carson said yesterday. Uh, you know, the fact that they've had two people drop out of the race already. There's just, yeah, I mean, it just it just seems like it's 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 just a. I can't say it on the air, but, you know, an S show going yeah, on no over doubt. there. You hey, know? it's going to clear up very soon. You can have your Trump right now. 2016 GOP, Jindal, Jindal, Jindal all the way. The great governor from the great state of Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, isn't he going, like, extra far right to try to to try to circumvent the 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 uh, inevitable hatred that'll come his way because uh, of his skin color and Bobby Pyish Bobby yeah I I it's interesting I mean I, I you're absolutely right you hate it though if nothing else <laughs> it's very interesting well I mean I'm not a big partisan politics guy to begin with but it's just it's it's I mean, clown show. Can we clean it up and call it a clown show to a degree? Thank you, thank you for that. Because um, I didn't know how to do it. I, I, <laughs> I, I, you know what I was saying. <laughs> but you know, and like, I, hey, don't get me wrong. I am not on that side of the aisle. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of that. The I'm a big Obama, a President Obama supporter. I think he's done a fantastic job. I hate all of the. The uh, the backbiting that's happening to him and people, you know, screaming about a, the bad job that he's done. But yet, when you look at the actual facts that that Bill Maher put out uh, recently, he's he's crushed it. Um, I'm really I'm, I'm liking Bernie Sanders right now. You know, the things that he's saying, the things that he's been doing over the last four decades for civil rights and things like that. You know, he seems to be a guy that really gets it. But I am being entertained by the GOP convention and and their debates at this point. It's all about ratings. And speaking of ratings, the NFL season, it is obviously underway. We're two weeks into it, and it's just amazing the kind of panic attacks that you get from the media and then certain fan bases. You look at 0-2 teams right now, Indy, Baltimore, Seattle, Detroit, Philly, New York Giants, the Saints, Texans, and the Chicago Bears. It is like, I told this to Gazal before he even came in studio, it feels like a version of the Jersey Shore. You get one set that's like a complete dumpster fire with these 0-2 teams, and you get the other 2-0 and clubs that are like, we're the greatest thing since the 85 Bears. It is amazing. And coaches usually consider the seasons broken down into quarters. First four weeks of the season, then 8, then 12, then 16. Obviously, there's 17 I mean, weeks. That's why I love baseball, because you sit back and you don't really look at the standings till about 30, maybe 30 games into the season over the course. Of the, then you have an idea, okay, between 30 and 40, if you're a team that's expected to contend but slumping, you know that you know by game 40, you don't want to be any more than five or six games out. You know, although now with the wild card is different, but NF, the nature of the NFL to me isn't it last. I don't know, maybe twenty years. There's five good teams, there's five bad teams, and everybody else is between seven and nine and nine and seven. Isn't that isn't that what we what we what we've seen? Yeah, but then you get these wild card teams that get that five or six spot, and then they go off and win not only a game but then a the conference title and then the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean. Pittsburgh Steelers were one of those clubs. Tom Coughlin. The Giants have done that twice. Didn't yeah. Both of their Super Bowls under Eli Manning come from the wild card spot. The perfect run. They were, what, 9-7 and seven that year? And so, then Somebody was talking about that today, about comparing Coughlin and Parcells, in that, you know, that, that first Giants Super Bowl when they beat the Broncos, when they beat Elway in 86, that's almost down the, the, uh, the chart of Giants Super Bowl wins. Because obviously when you knock off the undefeated Patriots – that's a huge one. And then when they beat, you know, Buffalo was considered unbeatable. That team, That's the right. Thurman Thomas, Jim Kelly team. Was the K-Gun. Scott Norwood, you know, wide left. Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting what's happened with, you know, and, and I think Coughlin's obviously done a fantastic job. He may just be to the point where he's been there too long now and they need to make a change. But it is interesting. The over, I mean, Dave, you and me have fun with the overreactions. <laughs> two I, games into the season. I just like the fact that I have proof positive that supports my statement that the best team doesn't always win the championship i have a lot of friends who are sports fans but not athletes and they they are dead giveaways to the fact that they're not athletes by saying oh how can he be great he didn't win a championship well can you please tell me i would love somebody to tell me that the new york giants were the better team when they beat the patriots that time 
that game was in the Patriots' hands. The guy caught the ball on his helmet. The, David Eli, Tyree. You know, Eli was sacked and got out of it. They got hot at the right time. They're not the better team. Got, there's plenty of people out there who haven't won championships who are considered great players. Magic Johnson said it best. Championships don't equal greatness. Greatness equals greatness. Um, me and Dave have this debate a lot, all the time. The greatest quarterback I ever saw play was Dan Marino. Does not, he does not have a ring. Um, if you had the rules today that when Marino was playing, you know, and even Elway, young, a younger Elway, those guys would have thrown for 6,000. You can't touch the receiver. You can't touch the quarterback. I mean, I remember reading, you know, I'm a little ahead of my time, but I was reading about Joe Namath when Namath started to get on his run in the 60s. The, the opposing team's defense against him was, let's break his jaw. That the Raiders actually did it once the year they won the Super Bowl. They broke Namath's jaw and got him out of the <laughs> out of the. They had had to miss two games. You can't do that anymore. So eras, especially in basketball, eras are so different. In, in baseball too, um, I'm trying to think like if if Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds never won a World Series, right? No, he did. He did, didn't he against the Angels or did they? No, they lost to the Angels. They lost that, but I mean, yeah. that doesn't make him any less, uh, you know, less of a great player. When he had, he, you know, for you and Dave talked about this too. For about seven years, he was the best player in Major League Baseball, and there was nobody close. Yeah, no. The, for in the history of baseball, there was nobody close. Barry Bonds is the greatest player to ever put spikes in dirt, hands down, in my opinion. See, I didn't live. I didn't grow up in that era of. A Babe Ruth, but you get a lot of people that are obviously Babe Ruth, and then if you go pitchers and you include Sandy Koufax, I mean those guys are, are right up there. But yeah, as a pirate and then as a giant, I mean you had a guy that was running bases, stealing bags, and then obviously hitting for contact and then hitting for power and as wasn't well. Wasn't he a, a perennial Gold Glover yeah. in the field as well? That's and, right. You know, so I don't know. I there's a lot of uh, hate hate going Barry's way because of the whole. You know, steroid accusations and things like that. But pe these people are they're not considering the fact that a Barry Bonds did not invent steroids. B he was in an era where he was already the best player. He was going to the Hall of Fame before he left Pittsburgh. Let's let's make that perfectly clear. Uh, but he was in an era where he was the best player, and he looked around, and people were all of a sudden on his level, and he said, "Wait, these guys are leveling the playing field." Okay, apparently I have to do something to re-establish myself as the dominant player here. And if he did what they said he did, I don't know. Has it been? Has it been admitted? Has, you know, I know that he's been vindicated as, as far, far as, as obstruction and yeah. things like that. So let's just say if he did what they say he did, he did it in in a climate where probably sixty-five to seventy percent of the guys around him were doing it as well. So I want I want because I want to talk to be about Barry Bonds. Obviously, because I know you have a, a more intimate relationship with him in terms of being able to have him worked out with him. But I saw a documentary about Doc Ellis documentary. I don't know if you, either of you guys have seen it. And what 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 was amazing to me was these guys are all talking about greenies. Every one of them was like, "Oh yeah, that's how we got through the '60s and the '70s." Was the road trips? There's a big, there's a big bowl of greenies in every clubhouse. <laughs> so, it, it, when you're, when you're, you know, are you splitting hairs if you're comparing uh, greenies to steroids? But since we have you here, Stephen, you told us on the last podcast we did together that you, when you were in college, you worked out with Barry Bonds, mm -hmm. and it was, was it, was it easy to keep up with that guy? It wasn't easy at all. He was a monster in the gym, and he was, you know, I asked him straight up. I said, Barry, I, because I'm trying to come to that level why are you the best baseball player in the game and he said it's because I work harder than everybody else everybody takes a month off they go on vacation I take a week and then I get back to work we were in the gym we were doing supersets we were doing you know and I was already you know coming from UCR I was already in the gym I was already lifting weights but I it was it was hard to keep up with him in the gym because I wasn't doing the same types of workouts he was doing workouts then that guys are doing now when, it, you know, like I said, supersets, uh, circuit training, things like that. He was an animal in the gym, and, and, and I, I have to give him his credit where it was due. He, even though he was on top of the game, he worked hard. He was there. We worked every day. We played catch. We went and hit. We lifted weights. We were doing everything that, you know, that we were supposed to do. And that's the other thing. You can be good once. But to be great, you need to have a level of consistency. Yeah, and I don't care who, you know, you could you can't take a guy off the street 
put steroids in him and make him a baseball player. Right. Baseball is a skill game. It's it's not just a strength game. And you know the recovery of uh, they say it makes you recover faster so that you can play the next day. Okay, that's cool. But it, does it help you put bat on ball? Does it help you hit the slider? You know, hit the slider. <laughs> does it help you drive? I mean, because let's face it. Barry Bonds was hitting 500 foot home runs in the last few years of his home runs, and if you look at the, you know, when he hit, when he broke the record, the 73, they ESPN played back to back to back all 73 of his home runs in a in a montage, and for the most part, they were all identical swings. You couldn't tell a difference between between one and another. So the fact that he was so locked in and his swing was so grooved. Like I said, he's hitting 500-foot home runs. It's not like he was hitting fence scrapers that were just getting out because he was a little bit stronger. I mean, I, I don't think it really plays as much of a part as a hitter in baseball as it does in other sports. Now, pitching is a different story. These guys are using their legs and their strength involved in using legs and arm strength to get the ball up there 94, 98 miles an hour. But as a hitter, you have to take a round bat and put it on a round ball square. And that ball is moving in three dimensions. It's moving at you, it's moving vertically, and it's moving horizontally. So I don't see how quick recovery or extra strength helps you with that task. Well, see, here's the counter to that, though, is because hitting 73 home runs, you're getting a look at, well, he didn't get a lot of looks at pitches, but you got to be in the lineup virtually every day. And so when you're in the lineup, obviously that has a lot to do with the recovery from night in or night out, plane rides, taking trips obviously down to San Diego or to the Bay in Oakland or San Francisco. So that's one thing that you can say, well, hey, you can hit for power, you can hit for contact, but then totaling something up, you got to be in the lineup every single day. I mean, the, the way I see it is like as a broadcaster, okay, Dave and I go through this sometimes. You're doing a game Thursday and Friday and then Saturday. So the Thursday and Friday games, you know, you have 48 hours, 72 hours, you're locked in for preparation. Yeah. And I don't want to say you're flying kind of, you know, you're you're, you're – you're flying uh, below the radar a little bit on Saturday, but Saturday you're just not in a position to do the preparation that you are for a Saturday broadcast. You just got to kind of roll with it. And it, it, what it is is you're playing 160 games in 180 days in baseball. So maybe out of that 160, you're at your 95 to 90, 90, 90 to 95 percent efficiency for 120 of those games. Then the 40, you're going to be playing somewhere between 75 to 90 percent. If you can pump it up to 85 to 90 for 30 of those 40 games, that certainly obviously is, a, is an advantage for the hitter. So I see that argument when it mm. comes to PADs, PEDs. Well, let's, well let's, let's break it down further. You get four at-bats, maybe five in a nine-inning game. Yeah. You're playing left field. You might get three balls. <laughs> Other than that, you're jogging off the field and jogging back on the field. How tough is that? How how much recovery do you I, – right. I, I think you could probably do that every day this week. If I said I want you to go stand at the plate four times and then jog out to left field and jog back in and I'm going to hit you three balls. I bet you could do that every single day. But I'm not going to do it as nearly as well as Barry Bonds. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. But what I'm saying is – No, I understand the, what you're the, saying. Well, the, the steroids didn't – increases talent no and then no. the argument was about recovery yeah you don't need recovery that much in baseball especially if you're a left fielder who's you know now if you're a pitcher who relieves every night and you throw 100 miles an hour and you got to crank up that arm you know that's an unnatural motion and, and it, there's damage being done to that shoulder and that elbow every single night that's going to help you recover but being a guy like Barry who's not doing those things he's not running into other guys like football players are he's not running into walls every other play he's not you know bending down like a catcher and having to you know uh, destroy his knees and things like that it just doesn't it it doesn't add up to a guy needing a speedy recovery I, I always love talking baseball with you because, you know, you talk about acting, your passion. I mean, whether you tweet or whether you talk about it, you can tell you truly that that's right here. That's in your heart that your love for baseball. And I was curious because me and Dave were talking about this before you came in the other topic. Um, African-Americans in baseball, there was a controversy last year with the, the Jackie Robinson a Little League out of Chicago, which I know that you were pretty vocal about. Um so here's the narrative that we were discussing, which I think is kind of a false narrative. The narrative we're hearing is this, that a kid who comes out 
has an opportunity to get a full scholarship for football or a full scholarship for basketball, but not for baseball. So that's the reason that African-American kids are largely being lost to football and basketball. What they leave out, though, is you can get paid to play baseball. Hmm. You can go Russell Wilson, right, where he went to play quarterback at NC State, but he made money playing in a minor I think with the Rangers. He was in the Rangers system and made money. And we had a uh, when I was working at CSUN, we had a kid named Amir Garrett, who was a college basketball player who played at St. John's and transferred to CSUN, but he was in the Cincinnati Red system because he was a lefty who could throw 95. Why isn't that given more as a counter-argument to the notion that, oh, well, you can get a free ride playing football or basketball but not baseball? Well, I think if you're asking my opinion, and I'll just give you my opinion, the minor leagues is the issue. Guys that are coming out of – destitute situations, inner city situations, coming from the projects, coming from uh, places that are extremely rural. They don't have time to wait five years to make the money. They want to get the money as soon as they get out of school. And they have families to support. They have kids of their own to support. They have moms and grandmas. But you're going, and if you're like going that. to school for four years, you're not really you're not you're not making a significant amount of money. If you're going to play e- football for Nebraska or you go play basketball for UCLA, true. But when you get done with school, you're going. If you're going, yeah. you're going right to the NBA, okay. and that's the, right to the NFL. And that's the elite guy. That's the you know in baseball, that's the Clayton Kershaw, that's the Mike Trout, that's the Bryce Harper. Those are those guys. But you can make their guys. I mean, you can be drafted in the tenth round and still get a six fi- significant six figure bonus. If you're a baseball guy. Yeah, that's true. But the, now the, the, the thing is also that we have the RBI program, revo- uh, Reviving mm-hmm. Baseball in Inner Cities. Baseball, because of, the, in my opinion, because of the slow track to the money, baseball has kind of been a sport that the black kids have looked at and said, yeah, I mean, you know, it's cool. First of all, they don't really offer it in my city. They don't see a lot of baseball. There's hardly any fields around here, so I don't know how I'm going to do that. And then they look at guys like LeBron, who's a, he comes out of high school and goes right. right to the league, and he's got a four, you know, I was going to exaggerate and say a $400 million shoe contract, but a $90 million shoe contract at age 18. And they say, well, man, I balled against LeBron in AAU. If he can get $90 million, I probably could get ten. You know, it, 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 there's just not as much opportunity with baseball. There's a slow track in baseball, and I don't think that kids are patient enough to want to go down that road when when they have the uh, the uh, the needs that they have. Like this kid at LSU right now, he's ready to play pro football. This, right. this running back, oh and, Leonard Fournette, and, yeah Fournette, and. The fact that he's not allowed to because of the, the well, rules. Don't get me started, Steve. Yeah. Don't get All me started. All I got to say to that is Marcus Lattimore. That I watched live that guy get his knee exploded on television when he was ready to go play football yeah. before. And, you know, then, they, you know, they wonder why uh, Jadevian Clowney thinks about taking the year off. You know, it's like they they force you into these situations where you can't go make a living while they're making a living off of what you're doing. Yeah, and that's part – see, and your LeBron point was great, and that was another another great point is, yeah, you have the LeBron James of the world and the guys who were drafted when they get out quickly. The thing about baseball that – and I didn't – and again, I didn't really even realize this so I started covering college baseball is they draft so many guys, and now with the way it's structured financially, you know, you have teams saving money – so they can overspend on a 22nd round pick to a kid they've scouted and they know has the mental and physical makeup. So they're paying their ninth round pick a $10,000 bonus, and they're giving – like Amir Garrett, I think, was a 20-something round pick, and his bonus was million-dollar bonus because he was a lefty you could throw 95, mm-hmm. but they didn't think he would play baseball because he had the college basketball opportunity. It's a catch-22, though, right? Because you're thinking about Major League Baseball and how it's developed. you got AAA, AA, single-A, and then you got the independent leagues where the NFL – they have nothing. That's the only jam yeah. job that you have there because you don't have NFL Europe. You don't have any of these other minor league teams that you can go to where the NBA you can go. You can play in Europe if you need yeah. to. And the same thing in the National Hockey League. you got these minor league systems. Right. So it is a catch-22. I, I think, and going back to your point with Lattimore, I, that was the first thing I thought. Blown out knee twice. 
Maurice Claret and also Mike Williams from USC, they tried to challenge the NCAA. They were ready to go pro. And had they had gone their second year of their playing careers, they might have been decent professionals. But because they couldn't, they didn't. And that's the worst thing. Because not only do you not go to the professional ranks, but then you wash out. That's the biggest thing. Because Claret, I mean, he turned into a disaster off the field. And a lot of that was because he didn't go that route that he thought he was destined to go. Yeah, and I also think that, like, like I was trying, like I was saying earlier, the the kids in the inner city are watching television, they're watching Instagram, social media, they're listening to their peers, and none of them are talking about baseball. They're talking about basketball. They have, you know, if you're living in New York City, you've got basketball hoops in playgrounds all over the city. I don't know how many baseball fields there are. And I know that it's very difficult to play a pickup baseball game. It is true. That is true. You know, so not to mention the fact baseball is a fairly expensive sport. You know, I I coach Little League now, and these kids are running around at eight years old with $300 bats. Yeah. You know, and next year they're going to need another one because they're eight and they're growing. And the 28-inch bat isn't going to work next year. <laughs> you're, you know, your background, because you probably, could you have played other sports or just baseball was what you loved from the beginning? Uh, it was what I loved from the beginning. I could have played other sports. I mean, I, I played you know I played football in high school. I played a little basketball, but it overlapped into baseball season, so I stopped doing that. I wrestled in junior high school. I swam. Uh, I was on on swim team. I played tennis. I played golf. So I, I could have done a lot of things. I was you know when I was swimming, I had a coach tell me that he thought I had a chance to be an Olympic swimmer, but I would have to give up baseball, and that was the last day I swam. So, you know, there were there were other opportunities. I just I just fell in love. My dad brought a, a baseball glove to the maternity ward, so I think it was it was my destiny. If you could do it all over again, would you change anything with your athletic career? Uh yeah. I would work a little bit harder between my first and second minor league season. Uh I was in the weight room and I was doing Wow, this is tough to say. I was in the weight room and I was doing my hitting, but I could have done more. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had just moved to a new city and didn't know anybody. So I didn't have the facilities that I that I normally had when I was growing up in in Northern California. Um, But, you know, a a resourceful person is going to find those facilities. And I I don't think I did enough uh, that that off season, and I think that that may have cost me. And this comes back to my question earlier where I asked you about how you evaluate yourself because in an industry like you are in now and a profession that you were in before, there's that fine line between knowing when your stock is up, when you've plateaued, and when your stock is going down. So do you feel that, I guess for all intents and purposes, in your second profession that you know how to manage that and understand it better? Absolutely. The one thing that I, I – I learned from baseball is to never let anybody else outwork you. And also when you're hot, try to stay hot, Mm -hmm. do what it takes to stay hot. Uh, When the rundown came out, I had a great opportunity. I was starring, uh, you know, in a, in a great scene opposite the rock. Peter Berg was, uh, you know, on the rise. I had a good opportunity to get my name out there from that small role, but I had no idea what a publicist was or how to use uh, publicity to get the next job. So I didn't use that momentum at all. And then I had to start over Mm. and then nobody knew what the rundown was. So I, you know, I I missed that opportunity. So I said, the next time I have that type of a platform, I'm definitely going to take advantage of it and keep the momentum going because I learned that people only want to talk to you while the thing is coming. Once it comes out, they're on to the next thing and they don't want to talk. So when Moneyball was coming, I mm-hmm. said, okay, for the month and a half, two months before Moneyball comes out, I'm going to do every news outlet I can possibly do. And I'm going to use the fact that it's a movie starring Brad Pitt and, and rest his soul, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, as, and not to mention the fact that I'm playing a superstar athlete, David Justice, as the in to those things. Welcome to Oakland, DJ. <laughs> yeah, right? That was... <laughs> 
So yeah, that was Royce Clayton. And, you know, that was that was actually improv on Royce's Royce's part. <laughs> he did a good job on that. That's my man, RC. Last question before we get you out of here on both notes with acting and also playing baseball. Do you feel like at this point in your life that you're living a dream or are you still chasing a goal? Both, actually. I I'm living the dream. You you follow me on on all the social networks and you also you also often see me put hashtag LTD. Yeah. That's living the dream. And I'm living the dream, but at the same time I'm such an ambitious person and and I want to do so much that I'm still chasing goals, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah, you're living the dream, but I haven't really made it yet. I'm not Will Smith. I don't, you know, I'm not getting $20 million a, a, a picture. I'm not able to influence the world the way I'd like to. Uh, I've, I've, I've done a lot and I've, I've gotten in, I've made headway and I've gotten myself to a level where a lot of actors don't get to go, but I still have goals. I still have, uh, things that I, I want to accomplish in my life and then I you know I, I can't be satisfied or, or complacent how do you define made it is it monetarily is it the soul food that you get from all the philanthropy work what is it is it could, it could be mom just telling you you've done everything that you've done well listen I don't know what Steven thinks you're playing golf with Jim Brown <laughs> yeah. you've, you've made it I'm sorry I you know and I don't know financially or professionally what you have down the road you get to play golf with Jim Brown, Stephen. You've made it. Well, yeah, thank you very much. I mean, Jim's a great friend of mine, and, and yeah, you're right. I, you know, this is something that Doug Smith will tell you that about me since he's known me. I've always been hard on myself, and I think, you know, most people say I don't give myself enough credit for the things that I do, and I hear them, but at the same time, I often respond with, well, that's why I've gotten the places that I've gone is because I am hard on myself. I push myself harder than anybody could possibly push me. Um, but to answer your question, having made it is freedom. Okay. When I have the freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want, without having to work it anymore, then I've made it until then I still have to push and I still have to, uh, put myself in position to get to the next stone. You know, I'm, it's like you're trying to cross a river. And, you know, the river is just rushing, rushing, rushing. Everybody wants to get on that other side. And I'm seeing little stones here and there. And I'm jumping across trying to get on one stone, next stone. But but in my opinion, freedom is is when you've made it. When you're like I said, you can if I wanted to do a charity event, I could fund it myself. I Hmm. wouldn't have to go look for sponsors. If I wanted to make a movie, I could finance it myself wouldn't have to go look in for a studio to do anything i could just make it and then i could look you know distribute it myself um having a house or or you know a condo or whatever that's fully paid for where i don't have a mortgage and no car payments and everything all my bills are paid up for the next 15 years i don't even see a bill i got them on auto pay and they just and i know the money's there and it's not going anywhere that's what i mean when i say made it um there's a lot involved financially because we have to make a living. We have to eat. We have to clothe ourselves and house ourselves. But there's also a, a, a personal freedom that comes with being able to make your own decisions and, and call your own shots that guys like Will and Denzel and Sam and Brad and you know these guys have. They have this freedom. Now, do they stop? No, because that's not how guys like that are built. Mm-hmm. You don't stop. You, you you do it because you enjoy it. And after a while, people start paying you to do the things you enjoy. And then you stop thinking about the money and you start thinking about the quality and the reach of what you're doing. And, and, and that's when it really starts to become good. When like things like rake, you know, five years ago, six years ago, nobody would have cared about me doing rake. But now... I have a bit of a fan base and some eyes on me and, and it's something that people are, are looking at and saying, wow, what a great thing. And I'm not doing it for them to say what a great thing. I'm doing it to get the movement out. And if them thinking it's great that I'm doing it and wanting to, wanting to be a part of it because I'm doing it makes them get involved and broadens the spectrum of the or broadens the scope of what Rake is able to accomplish 
then hey, so be it. But I, you know, I just, it's, you know, like you say, I, I am living a dream and I, I enjoy every minute of it. But at the same time, there's that duality in me that says, okay, now don't get complacent. You have not made it. I know a lot of people that, you know, see you on television and on film and they think that it's all, you know, peaches and cream, but we know we're not there yet. You know, we don't, we don't. We haven't accomplished everything we set out to accomplish. And I don't know if we ever will. I mean, I'm sure as soon as I, you know, all the things that I have on my on my uh, slate now, by the time I accomplish all of these, I'm sure something else will come and I'll have to add things to the list. So it's the evolving and the recreating of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of fun today, guys. I, Steven, I, you know, we mentioned the top. Got, you're coming back. <laughs> oh. You don't know. You're coming back. <laughs> Yeah, I, hey, anytime, I'll send the teamster to pick you up. You're coming back. <laughs> anytime you guys want me, I'm here. I don't live far from here. I didn't know you guys were so close to the house. So, you know, anytime you want me, I am I am here. Uh, like I said, we should talk about how I can get in one of these rooms and, and, and start my own podcast. I want to do it and then have you guys come on as guests. So. Might as well. Now, you're on social media, like you mentioned. So Instagram, what do you got? Instagram account is? Uh, Instagram and Twitter are both at Stephen C. Bishop, Stephen with a PH. And Facebook is just Stephen Bishop. And uh, I have both a personal page and a fan page there. Uh, and like I said, uh, October 20th. Being Mary Jane, nine o'clock BET, and uh, rakenow.org. Get out there and, and do a random act of kindness for somebody and see how good it makes you feel by making them feel good. Like a baseball player, a five tool player. That's exactly what he is. Stephen Bishop, thank you very much for joining us today. I had a great time with you, obviously, catching up and, and hearing about the wonderful things that you are doing, obviously, in the professional world and then also in your personal life. So thank you very much again. No, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate you remembering me and, and, and reaching back out. And like I said, anytime you guys want me, I'm here. Because this will be hard to top now. Hey, man, he played David Justin Moneyball. <laughs> We're paying him $3.5 million to play against or something like that. I forget the line. <laughs> you're but. paying me $5 million. No, you're paying me $7 million bucks, man. So, yeah, maybe I am a little bit. No, no, David. The Yankees are paying half your salary. The Yankees are paying you $3.5 million to play against them. <laughs> How does that make you feel? On that note, we'll be getting out of here. So for Stephen Bishop and for Ghazal Hassan, I am David Gascon saying so long. You've been listening to the David Gascon Report on Fox Sports Radio's podcast edition from Behind the Glass. So long, everybody. This is Fox Sports Radio. Fox Sports Radio.